We, uh, if you got your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to uh, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew, first, first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 5. And uh, we're in the second week of this series that we're calling Real Deal. And, and what we're talking about uh, in this series is we're talking about um, being real, authentic witnesses in the world. One, one of the marks of being a real deal, I don't know about you, but I just want to live an authentic life. Authentic, uh, authenticity is important, I think. It's important to me, and I value that. One of the things that turns me off quicker than anything else is uh, posers, you know, pretenders, people who pretend to be what they're not. And so we want to live authentic lives as followers of Jesus. And, and one of the marks of being an authentic follower of Jesus is that authentic followers actually follow. It's in the name. And so authentic followers actually, in other words, what we, we, we obey Jesus' commands. We obey whatever it is that he tells us to do. We follow his lead. And, and one of the very last commands that Jesus gave to his followers, this is after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, right before he ascended up into heaven, one of the last commands he gave to them is he told them, he said, here's the task that I'm leaving you with. Go, or in your going, make disciples. This is the task I'm leaving you with. Go and make disciples. And what I want us to understand this morning is that this command, and it is a command, this command wasn't just for those who stood on the hill when he ascended up into heaven, but this command was for every individual who says Jesus and answers the call to Jesus that I'm going to follow you. And so this command wasn't just for them, it was for all of us as well. And so in order to kind of help equip us to uh, do that better, what we're doing in this series is we're just looking at four analogies that Jesus gave that are centered around what does this look like? What does it look like for us in, our, in the context of our lives to go and make disciples? Last week, we, we talked and we used the analogy of fishermen and, and how uh, the, the basics of fishing actually translate into how we share Jesus. This week, um, I want to talk to you this morning a little bit about being an influencer. How many here understand that you have influence? Anybody? Somebody? Yeah, a bunch of you. Good, good. I want you to know that every single person in this room, at least on some level, in some way, has influence over others. That the God is, is, in some way, he has intentionally given every single one of us influence over somebody. And, 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 and this, is, this is actually, this is going to be one of the most profound statements that I have ever made, Carly. And so you guys might want to write this down because this is going to be super, super profound. You ready? All right. This is going to be profound. The reason that God gave you influence is to influence. 
That's, that's profound, man. The reason that God gave you influence is to influence. You, you see, our biggest problem is oftentimes we fail to exercise what God has already given to us. And whether you realize it or not, God has given you influence. There's not one person in this room, not one person who is joining us online who does not have some sort of influence. And in, in the scripture, Jesus gives us a, a couple of examples of the kind of influencers he has called us to be. And so what I want to do is I want to look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. Now this is part of a bigger sermon that Jesus preached. Some people have called this the greatest sermon that's ever been preached. It's the Sermon on the Mount. And so this is part of that sermon. And in the middle of this sermon, Jesus says these words in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. He says, you are. Now I would encourage you, um, I always underline words that jump out at me are important. I would underline that word are. You are the salt of the earth. He says, but if the salt loses its flavor, the original uh, word there is sometimes translated as savor. We don't use that word very often anymore, but if the salt loses its flavor or its savor, how shall it be seasoned? Jesus says it is then good for nothing. That's where we get that phrase, good for nothing. They're just good for nothing. It is good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. He says, you are, again, there's that word again, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. And then Jesus says these very important words. He says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So the, the, the first analogy that Jesus uses that we looked at last week is, is that of fishermen. Here, Jesus actually uses two analogies. We're kind of combining them into one, but he uses the analogies of salt and light. And, and, and I don't want you to miss this, and this is why I had you underline it, because Jesus is very specific and intentional when he says this. He says, not that you're like that, he says you are these things. You are salt. He says you are light. And so this morning, I really only have two points for you this morning. This, is a, this, this, this might be the shortest sermon I've ever pe preached, Pastor Brad. Um, and then some of you are like, we can only hope. But <clears throat> my, my two points are this. Number one is you are salt. I just stole that, Ben, right from the Bible right there. It's what I do. You are salt. Now, why would Jesus say you are salt? I mean, why, why would he pick that? What is, what is he talking about? Well, what he's talking about here is he is talking about salt. He's, he's kind of trying to help us understand this idea of influence, that salt is, a, is something that influences every single thing that it comes in contact with. Now, now you might not know this, 
But salt is something that is actually mentioned several different times in the Bible. In fact, if you go clear back to the Old Testament, when the sacrificial system was first being instituted by God, God gives this very specific instruction that every single sacrifice was actually to be seasoned with salt. Now, now why is that important to us? We obviously don't live under that system anymore, but why is this important to us? It's important because we know that everything in the Old Testament represents something. It's a, it's a foreshadowing of, of things that are to come. And so, so let me just show you the, the scriptures first of all, and then I'm going to tell you what it represents. The first one I want to look at is found in the Old Testament book of Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13. And, and it says this, it says, In every offering of your grain offering you shall season with salt. You shall not allow the salt of the covenant of your God to be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Jump over to Numbers chapter 18. Numbers chapter 18, verse 19. It says this. It says, all the heave offerings of the holy things, which the the children of, uh, of Israel offer to the Lord. I have given to you and your sons and your daughters with you as an ordinance forever. And here here he comes again. It says, it is a covenant of salt before the Lord with you and your descendants with you. Okay, so if you noticed in both of these verses, there's a couple of words that show up along with salt. In both of these verses, first of all, the word covenant appears. A covenant is, um, is a binding promise. It's, 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 a, it's a commitment between two parties. It's, it's kind of like a contract. And, and, and so um, through the sacrifice that God, this system that God has instituted with his people, God is making actually this covenant with his people And of course, we know that Jesus ultimately becomes the the ultimate sacrifice. And and we see through him this covenant relationship that we're able to enter into with God through Jesus. There's a covenant relationship that we enter into with God. So covenant is the first word. The second word that appears is the word forever, forever. And so salt is not only symbolic of this covenant, but, but salt is also symbolic of eternity. Think about it. Salt is something that preserves, right? Salt preserves. And so it's symbolic of, of, of causing something to last. So, so God calls this a covenant or a promise of salt. Because what he's saying here is, he's saying, part of my covenant that I have with you is I'm going to preserve you. That's way better than some of you are looking right now. <laughs> God has promised to preserve us. Now, now hear me on this. I heard, a, I heard a pastor talk about this not long ago, and I thought, that is so good, i got to steal it. And so that's what we pastors do. We just steal stuff from other pastors and, and, and kind of share it with other people. But, but I heard him talk about this, and he said, you, you know, um, we talk a lot about our own perseverance. 
how we, we've got to per- persevere, you know, we got to, through hard times and through difficulties, it's important for us to persevere and hold on. He said, but I don't hear us talk near as much about preservation. How we want to persevere and hold on. That's important. We got to hold on and persevere. But what we have to understand is that God is at work too, and he is preserving us. That's his promise. Now listen, this is good news because as important as it is for us to hold on, and we need to do that, but I'm telling you this morning, the good news is, is we can rely on his holding power way more than we have to hold, rely on our own holding power. Woo, that's good. Man, we need to understand that God, his desire is to hold on to us and, and, and preserve us. Yeah, we need to hold on to him. We, we need to do that. But I'll tell you what, I, I'm so grateful that I don't have to rely on my own power. That there's a power greater than myself. And I can hold on to his power and I can trust in his power to, to help me and preserve me. I, I think this is why Paul in, in 2 Timothy chapter 1 says that, he says this, he says, you know, even in my suffering, even in those difficult times that I face in life, even when things, I don't have the answer for stuff, and, and I'm holding on with all of my might, he says, I'm not ashamed in those seasons because I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to guard or to keep or protect or to preserve that which I have entrusted to him until that day, until he calls me home, that he has the power to preserve me and empower me and help me no matter what I go through in life. Okay, so salt is a symbol of eternity. Now I want you to watch this because this is amazing. Jesus says that you are the salt of the earth. You're the salt. In other words, you and I have been given a task. And the task we have been given is a task of preserving the world around us. We've been given the task of keeping the world from decaying. Don't don't, don't miss this. As Christ followers... We have actually been given the task of preserving our society from falling apart. We've been given the task of preserving our society from decay. And the reality is, this is is an undeniable or undeniable fact. The more you remove the Christian faith and remove Christian principles out of society the quicker that society will decay and die. That's an undeniable fact. I mean, you think about it, that years ago they took prayer out of our schools. Look what's happening now. They they removed the Ten Commandments out of the courthouses, and look what's happening now. It's just a reality that whenever you remove or take the salt out, the natural result will always be decay. Now, we're not in despair. We, we, we have hope because there are still Christians in our schools. They, they may have removed the prayer 
but they could not remove the prayers, right? Woo. That's good news, man. They, they, they may have removed the prayers. They can't remove the prayers. There are still Christians in our, there are still Christians in our courtrooms, and there should be. We need to pray for more Christians to serve on school boards, and we need to pray for more Christian teachers, and we need to pray for more Christian principals and administrators, and we need to pray for more Christian judges and more Christian attorneys and more Christian probation and parole officers, and we need to pray for more Christians on our city councils and in our state legislature and in our federal governments because, because it's only if there is salt that our society will be preserved. Okay, so salt preserves. But salt also makes things taste good. Mm. Come on now. Without salt, man, food is bland. And I mean, come on, we, we know this. We're Nebraskans. I mean, who in the world would ever think of eating corn on the cob without some butter and some salt, man? You got it. You're not even a Nebraskan if you don't put butter and salt on that corn on the cob. And so, you know, because salt makes things taste good. So don't miss this. As Christians, we talked a little bit about this last week, taste and see. But as Christians, we are tasked to live our lives in such a way that we make God taste good to the people that we come in contact with. And there are other places in Scripture where, you know, it uses different analogies. One of my favorites is that Paul writes this, and he says, you are the aroma of Christ. In other words, when people come in contact with you, they'll be just like, wow, you just smell good, man. <laughs> that'll be, I mean, it's, it's something in our senses that you, you taste good. And what they're tasting and what they're smelling, it's not us. It's Christ in us. The, the problem is that sometimes we don't let Christ flow through us in such a way that other people can taste and see. That other people can, can smell and, and can enjoy the presence of Jesus. But we're supposed to live our lives in such a way that we actually, and we can do this, man, that we actually make God taste good to people who don't know him. How do we do that? Paul tells us in Galatians chapter five. We gotta be filled with the spirit, first of all, and when we're filled with the spirit, there is the fruit of the spirit that begins to flow out of our lives. The fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Listen, fruit tastes good, man. Fruit is sweet. Fruit tastes good. Fruit is sweet in your mouth. And so whenever we're loving, we're displaying the fruit of the Spirit, love. Whenever we're loving to other people, especially when they're not loving to us. See, influence. If Brad is an, Brad is an influence, Pastor Brad is an influencer, if Brad is an influencer, when that, what that means is that his life is going to influence mine, the people around me. It's not, we're, we're talking about being influencers, not 
being influenced by. We're influenced by the Spirit. And so it doesn't matter what somebody else does. It doesn't matter how somebody else acts. It doesn't matter how unloving they are. See, when the fruit of the Spirit is in us and we are loving, what that is doing is it's giving them a taste of the goodness of God. Whenever we just ooze with joy, even when we're not getting our way, even when things don't happen the way we think they ought to happen. But man, we got this joy that's in us because he's filled us with joy. Where the presence of the Lord is, Scripture says, there is fullness of joy. There ain't no joy. I don't know. Work that backwards. But whenever we're oozing with joy. When, whenever we are people who know that we're seeking peace and whenever we're patient and whenever we're kind and whenever we're gentle to people, I'm telling you that tastes good. Nobody, I've never heard anybody complain about, man, I'll tell you what, that Brielle, she is just way too kind. It just drives me nuts. I hate it how good you are. Just ben, quit being so patient, Ben. <laughs> Nobody complains about that. Why? Because it tastes good. We're, we're giving people a taste. It makes God taste good. Here's what we need to be aware of is that whenever, whenever we, we don't act loving, whenever we're not patient, those times where we're not gentle, whenever we lash out at people because we didn't get our way, they didn't do what we wanted them to do, and this is what I wanted to do, and so we lash out at them. Whenever we're selfish, and everything's about me, if I don't get my way, then I'm going to let the world know that they've messed up because I didn't get what I wanted. And we bear the name of Christian. Guess what that does? See, see, a lot of times when we look at the Ten Commandments and it talks about that thou shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, we, we tend to think about, okay, we shouldn't use his name as a curse word. And we shouldn't, by the way, if you're wondering. But one of the ways that we take the name of the Lord in vain is when we bear his name and then we treat people in a way that he would never treat them. Whew. Let that sink in. Man, and I tell you this stuff, the Holy Spirit, Scripture says that, that there's no condemnation in Christ. So, so this is not a condemning message to those of us who are followers of Jesus, but it ought to be a convicting one. See, because he will convict our hearts because his desire is, is this for us just to repent. We have a bad attitude. This is going to come as a big surprise to some of you. But there are sometimes I have a bad attitude. <laughs> Ask Laura. <laughs> I might have had one this morning. I'm, not, I'm just saying. 
But when the Holy Spirit convicts us of that, because he's our Lord and he's our master, then our response is like, God, you're right. We come into agreement with him. That's what confession is. We're just coming into agreement with whatever he says about us and about what we've done and what our situation. Yeah, I confess that. I did that. You're right. And then we repent. We, we, I'm sorry. Help me. You need to help me. And we grow in that. This is how we grow spiritually. And so whenever, whenever we do that, though, and we don't, like, there's a big difference. So sometimes, you know, we slip up, and so there's times, like, Samantha was horrible to me last. No, I'm just kidding. No, she wasn't. She wasn't horrible to me. It's always sweet. But if we, if, we, if we do mess up and the Holy Spirit convicts us, it's important to go back and make that right. You know, the other day, I didn't, I didn't act very loving to you. And I'm sorry. I hate it when I do that. Would you please forgive me for that? I'm trying. God's, God's helping me. Who would get mad over that? See, see, see this, is, this puts a good taste in people's mouth. One of, the, one, of the, one of the criticisms of Christ followers, y'all have heard this, they're nothing but a bunch of hypocrites. It's not hypocritical to admit your humanity and say, Brian, sometimes... You know, I, I'm not as, I wasn't as kind as I wish I would have been in that moment. I just let my emotions get the best of me, and I'm sorry for that. You didn't deserve that. I'm sorry for that. So I didn't do anything to Brian, but <laughs> take that for the next time I do, Brian. I've, I've got one in the bank there. But See, this is important because when we think about this, we think about you know, this idea of those who are leaving the bad taste in people's mouths, we tend to think about other people, those other people. And I think Jesus' words here need to be a warning for each and every one of us because this is, man, this is startling. Because Jesus says that a person can start out as good salt, but over time we can actually lose our flavor. In other words, if we're not careful, we can actually shift from making God taste good to becoming part of the group that leaves a sour taste in people's mouths when it comes to God. Jesus says you can, we can lose our flavor. He said when salt loses its flavor. So how can salt lose its flavor? The original Greek word that is translated in English as lose its flavor, it actually comes from, from one Greek word. So lose its flavor, three English words, comes from one Greek word. And this word is only in the Bible four times. Twice it's this same instance where Jesus is talking about salt losing its flavor. Matthew records it, Luke records it. So there's two of them, the exact same verse. The other two times, Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 1 and uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul uses this word, but as Paul writes it, it's not translated as lose its flavor. Instead, it's translated as becomes foolish or, fo or just foolish. Look at, look at Romans chapter 1, verse 21. Paul says this, he, goes, he says, because although they knew God, they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, 
In other words, how do you not glorify him as God? Don't obey his commands. Say you're a follower, but not actually follow. And so they, they knew God, but they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. The original Greek word here at the end, they became fools, is the word Marane. It's where we get the word what? Moron. Moronic. It refers to a foolish person. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, Paul talks about how that God has taken and he has made the wisdom of the world look morone, moronic, foolish. And so what is Jesus saying here in Matthew chapter 5? He's saying this. He's saying, hey, listen to me. I saved you. I, I adopted you into my family. I brought you in. I made you salt. This is what you're supposed to be to, to, to influence people by demonstrating my goodness in a tangible way. But he says, if you lose your flavor, or, or you could say it like this, if you trade my wisdom to become foolish, then you're not good for anything, Jesus says, but to be tossed out because instead of bringing life, you're actually bringing death. It's, it's the same Greek word. It's saying if salt becomes foolish. Okay, so, so how does that happen? How, how can salt become foolish? Well, in, in the natural, salt, where you find, when they mine for salt, salt is found connected to a rock. Hopefully you got that right there. 1 Corinthians 10.4 says that they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So, so salt is found clinging to, holding on to, staying close to the rock. And then, then as it's next to the rock, salt allows water to continually wash over it and purify it and take the contaminants out of it. Are, are y'all getting this? So, so the way that, 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 that salt stays pure, it stays close to the rock, it's purified by the water that's washing over it. Ephesians 5.26 says that we are washed by the water of the word. And so salt stays pure. It stays, it stays uncontaminated by clinging to the rock. It stays pure from the elements that are around it that are trying to get in by staying next to the rock and continually allowing the water of the word to wash over it and purify it and keep it clean, pure, good. Y'all getting this? This is really good stuff, man. Flavor comes from staying close to Jesus. 
Flavor comes from constantly washing ourselves in the word. If we don't continually do those two things, the reality is that every single one of us could wind up doing something foolish. And when we do foolish things, it impacts our witness. It impacts our influence. All right. So point number one, your salt. Anybody want to guess what point number two is? Your light. Yeah. Your salt and your light. Now, now here's what's interesting. On the surface, what Jesus says here, if you think about it, 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 it appears to be in conflict with what he says in another verse where it says, I am the light. Here he says, you are the light. If, if he is the light, how can you be the light? I mean, the is like one light. And, and so on the surface, it appears that he is in, in conflict. So which is it? I mean, how can we be the light if Jesus is the light? And why would Jesus even say something like that where he says one thing here and another thing over here? Well, let's unpack this a little bit. In order to understand what Jesus was saying, it's in John chapter 8, verse 12, where he says this. He says, I am the light of the world. Okay? So in order to understand this, we got to jump forward to John chapter 9, verse 5. I want you to watch this carefully because Jesus says this. He says, as long as I am in the world, in other words, as long as I am physically on this earth, I am the light of the world. All right, jump forward to John chapter 12, verse 35. Actually, uh, before we put this scripture up, you got to remember, in John chapter 12, Jesus is preparing his followers for a shift that is about to take place. In John chapter 12, Jesus begins to prepare his disciples for the reality that the day is approaching quickly where he is going to be leaving them. And so in John chapter 12, he begins to prepare them. In John chapter 13, he washes their feet in order to show them, hey, this is the kind of serving ministry that I'm calling you guys to. These three pastors that stood up here, along with the other pastors of the church, our call primarily, first and foremost, is a serving ministry. It's to serve, not to be served. As ministers, and every single one of us is ministers of the, bio, of the gospel. And so our call, your call, as ministers of the gospel is first and foremost to serve other people. I love the first line of Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life, because I think it sets the stage for everything. The first line of the book is, it's not about you. When, we, when we're invited into the family, we're called to serve. So Jesus washes their feet to demonstrate that in John chapter 13. In 14, 15, and 16 is where the conversation at the Last Supper takes place. In John 17, Jesus goes to the garden and he prays. In John 18, Jesus is arrested and tried. In John 19, he's crucified. In John 20, he's raised from the dead and appears to his disciples. And then in 21, the last chapter of John, he appears to his disciples and he reinstates Peter. Okay, so back to John chapter 12. He's preparing them for all of this. 
And he tells them this. He's, he's trying to help them understand. Listen, I'm about to be taken out of the world. And this is important because Jesus is wanting them to understand that there's this shift that's taking place. He's saying, I'm no longer going to be able to be with you physically. The way that we've operated up to this point, it's not going to be like that anymore. And, and I'm not going to be present physically to lead this movement that we have started here. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to actually task you to do all of the things that you've watched and you've witnessed and you've experienced me do. What I did, now you're going to do. And in John chapter 12, verse 35, it says this. It says, then Jesus said to them, a little, in a little while, the light, or for a little while, the light is with you. So he's talking about himself. I'm going to be with you for a little while longer. So he says, walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light. Now watch this, that you may become sons, and this is all encompassing, sons and daughters of the light. See, what Jesus is trying to help them understand is that even though I'm not gonna be in the flesh anymore, I'm still gonna be in the flesh because I'm gonna be in your flesh. That's why, why the church is called the what? The, the what? The body of Christ. You and I, we are the body of Christ on earth right now. And so Jesus is the light in us so that we can be the light. And that's why Jesus could say, you are the light of the world. He says, as long as I'm in the world, I'm the light. But when I leave, I'm gonna put my spirit in you and you're gonna become the light. So don't miss this, because what this means is that the only light that the world around you will have is if you allow the light of Jesus to shine through you. And if you don't, if you do what Jesus says that nobody would do, if you take your light and you put it under a basket because I'm, you know, I'm embarrassed and because, come on, if light shines in the midst of darkness, it's going to draw attention. And, uh, you know, the, the whole world, when it's headed this way and, and, and when everyone is saying this about, you know, if everybody's saying this about human sexuality and saying this about marriage and saying this about family and saying this about finances and saying this about this situation and that situation and the light has something else to say. Come on, the light is going to stand out. But listen, when there is no light, man, this world is in big trouble. I want you to think about that. If you and I, if we don't shine the light out there, I mean, if the only place we shine the light is under this basket. Man, the world is in trouble. See, see, the world needs the light to leave the covering of this basket and go into the dark places and just be the light. Shine the light. I hear people talk sometimes. In fact, I had this conversation with somebody before I ever 
we were back in Kansas before we ever came here, and they were lamenting the job that they had. And they were talking about how, man, this job I have, it's so tough. I, I mean, I'm like the only Christian the worst in this place, and, and there's, there's so much, you know, I listen to bad language all day long, and there's immoral talk, and there's all this stuff going on, and, and they began to talk about how, man, I just wish that I could work at this Christian place. If I could just work for this Christian organization where, like, everybody that works there is Christian, wouldn't that be awesome if everybody that works there is Christians, and we could talk about God all day long, and we could celebrate the good things that God's doing in our lives, and at lunchtime, we could all hold hands, and we could say a prayer together, and we could sing Kumbaya, and it would just be so awesome to be around Christians all day long. And I wish I had, and thank God for Christian organizations. I sat there and I thought, man, you get to be a light in the middle of darkness. I'll be honest with you as a pastor, that one of the biggest challenges I face is how can I get away from all the other light and get out in the darkness because I'm always around Christian people. I, I want to be in an environment where the light shines. And there's some of you here that maybe you can identify with that. It's like, man, my job is hard, and there's people there, and I listen to this stuff, and there's all these things going on, and I wish I had this. No, have you ever thought about the fact that maybe God placed you right where you are because he looked, and he saw a dark place, and he saw a bunch of people who needed to experience his light, and he looked at you, and he said, I put the light, I put my light in them, and so I'm going to take them, and I'm going to put them right here to be the light and to shine in dark places. See, I believe that God does that. Why are you in the neighborhood you're in? To be the light. Man, I don't know about you, I'm so thankful for, for how God placed people who carried his light around me. Man, I grew up in the church, I heard all the stuff, but it was in the front seat of a pickup truck after playing basketball one night, my life was falling apart, and this guy took a risk. He took the basket off, and he, show, he showed the light, and light entered into that pickup truck, and because of it, it changed the trajectory of my life because I encountered the light. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't because of that. We, we gotta be the light. Jesus says, you are Salt. salt. Salt is something that's kind of covert. It's something that impacts things over time. Light, he says, you're the light. You're the salt. You do it over time, but you're the light. Light is something that impacts it in a moment, man. Don't, don't believe me. Wake up tomorrow morning before the sun comes up and watch it rise and then wonder where the darkness went. I mean, things change. Darkness disappears. You guys, you guys may have heard the story about the guy who wondered where the sun went in the morning. So he stayed up all night wondering where the sun went. And then it dawned on him. That's my dad joke for today. Yeah, Dane, I needed you. We are called to be the light. Listen. My desire is for every single person who is a follower of Jesus and who calls Connecting Point your church to take this seriously 
and be salt and light in your world to be an influence. And here's the good news. I want to say one more thing about light. And Brian, you guys want to come and we're going to wrap things up here. But the good news is this, is you and I, we don't have to manufacture the light. We don't have to make it. Because Jesus is in us and he is the light. So we don't have to manufacture the light. Our responsibility is just not to hide the light. We got to quit hiding the light, man. Let your light shine before others so they might see your good works and give glory to God who is good, who they could taste and see. Stand with me this morning. Father, this morning as we close out our time here, My heart is that you would meet each one of us right where we're at. And whatever it is that you want to say to us individually from this message this morning, I pray that our hearts would be open to it. Father, this morning, I pray for some that you will just kind of encourage, (laughs) that you would give them the courage, that you would end courage, that you would put courage in them to allow your light to shine. Just to to be good, to be loving, to be patient, to be kind. Lord, let us be bold to share the stories of your goodness to us in the same way we share any other good story. Father, for some of us, you may be convicting our hearts. That's a good thing. It's good when you convict us. Your heart is for us. You just want to grow us. You want to draw us closer to you. And so, Lord, this morning, if there's any of us here who just need to do some business with you and say, you know what, God, you've you've shown me that I just have not done a great job in this area. Lord, we know that you're not here to beat us up or drop the hammer on us or, 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 or tell what a worm you are. You're a terrible person. No, that's not what you're about. But Lord, when we confess that and we come into agreement with your heart, I believe that you will take that and you will shine your light through us. There are some of us that may need to go and seek somebody out and say, you know, and I, I, I have not been a great representation of Christ in this way, and I'm sorry. That'd be a great way to be the light. Lord, thank you for putting us where you have. You placed us in this church. Every single person that's here is not here by accident. You've dispersed us across the city in various neighborhoods and places of employments and schools, and that's not by accident. You, you put us in areas where there is darkness, Because you trust us. You've entrusted us to be your light. And so we ask that you'd help us to take the basket off, to shine, to love people with your heart, to see them the way that you see them, and to represent you in such a way that people would taste 
and see that you are good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, before you leave, we're gonna, the band's going to send us out with a song of declaration. And so, Brian, would you help us?